0: The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor.
1: What is up everyone and welcome to the Buddies Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health, and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Garrett Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Die Buddies podcast. Uh, Here with us today, we have a very special guest and very... Excited to dive into his story. Brandon Mao is uh, an amazing, amazing human being. And he's actually working on a book that's come out sometime in the near future, uh, kind of detailing just his entire story and what he hopes to give to the world. Uh, And so without further ado, we'll just kind of let Brandon take over and tell us a little bit about yourself. But thanks, Brandon, so much for being on the podcast.
2: Hey, thank you very much for having me. Um... A little bit about myself. I was a diagnosed as a diabetic at the age of three. <laughs> um, I'm currently 36 and I was a well-controlled diabetic for almost my entire life until a kidney stone hit me and kind of threw everything for a loop um, in my late 20s. And um, so I've I've, been, I've I've experienced the gambit when it comes to health and diabetes and diabetes side effects and going through all of that kind of stuff. So it's been quite a journey.
1: Wow, uh, that might, we'll get into uh, kind of everything leading up to the kidney stone and everything there afterwards in, in just a second. Uh, but you know, is it when in terms of diabetes is this? Uh, you know, are you right now more focused on? Uh, diabetes, or is it more just organ? Uh, I guess spoiler alert for the story: whether you've had an organ transplant two years ago, <laughs> uh, but uh, is it, are you more focused on just reaching out to people, or, or you know, what are you trying to get across to so many people right now with your story?
2: Motivation to keep going, no matter what, um, and it's not specifically for diabetics. It's not specifically for organ transplant patients it's not specifically for anyone it's it it's for everyone within the chronic illness community because all autoimmune diseases all all people of every shape and size and from wherever you're at in life it it, it health and and wellness and illness affects everybody and so that's kind of who i speak to um and just just because I um, did with, dealt with diabetes for so long and stuff like that, that is what is most common to me and what is most easy for
1: me to talk about. Gotcha. Uh, so let's kind of dive into maybe everything leading up to, you know, that mo- moment with the kidney stone. So you're diagnosed at three years old and how was that, uh, you know, growing up and living with diabetes? How was that uh, experience for you?
2: You know, there... I, I have nothing negative to say about it. I don't feel like I am a victim of something i It doesn't run in my family, so it, it was like a, a big surprise. Mm. Um, my parents did, did very well at taking care of me. They instilled very good habits in me. Um, I didn't meet another diabetic until I went to a diabetic camp in third grade. <laughs> you know like it, um When I was growing up as a diabetic, diabetes was seen as something really negative. It had really negative connotations with it. And you didn't tell people you were a diabetic. Um, And so growing up with it, it was fine. I just, I I assimilated very well and um, I didn't let diabetes control me. I controlled diabetes and I lived life with it, but I did it with very helping parents where i was able to play sports i was able to do pretty much anything i wanted but my parents always kept an eye on me because of that low blood sugar or just in case they always had something backed up so like my dad would be the coach of any sports that i played or any games i was playing one of my parents were always there if i was at a friend's house my someone was there to watch me or we'd had friends over at my house instead. And, you know, you just, as a kid, you just, you, you moderate, you change plans accordingly um, to fit a diabetic's lifestyle without making other, other people feel bad for you being a diabetic. And that's just how I grew up. Everything was fine. Um, And I would say it was like that until about age 16 when I got on the insulin pump. And that's when things like drastically changed because before then I was on NPH and R, (laughs) N and R. Those are the two insulins I was on until I was age 16 when they got fast acting insulin out on the market.
1: Wow. Uh, So... With growing up in sports and, and not using a pump and, and just using injections, uh, so that was pretty easily manageable, you think? You know, that wasn't, there wasn't too many complications at that time?
2: I would say it was managed the same. Um, it was le- a lot less involved because when it came down to it it, it, it came down to me making sure that I ate enough food It wasn't, it didn't have to do with carb counting. It was just making sure you ate enough food to cover that insulin that you took, um, every day that was in your system that lasted the eight hours. And if there was a low that you had the appropriate way to treat it. And in the meantime, whatever your blood sugar was, it kind of just, it it just worked itself out. There were no such thing as corrections and Mm. Um, then when the pump and stuff came out, it drastically changed. Everything counted, every thing you put in your mouth mattered and you had a bolus for everything and you had, and, and so it, it really changed the way that I started to manage my diabetes. Um, I was always well controlled and the pump definitely helped me become better controlled at, as a diabetic because then I could keep better track of everything.
1: Gotcha. Great. You got any questions based off that? Yeah.
0: So you said with the two insulins that you were taking beforehand, um, there were kind of the medium acting insulin. So essentially you're taking the same dosage every day. And so you just worried about eating the proper amount of food to cover that. So really your insulin didn't change. It was just maybe your eating habits changed around it. Yeah. And then
2: like, yeah. And then what would the things that would change it is if I, if it was a a day where I was playing sports or I was working on the farm a lot, it, it wasn't something where it was like, oh, like, you know, you you just burned however many calories it was you have to make up for it with this much, with this many carbohydrates. It was like, oh, you better eat an orange and here's some peanut butter. And and you kind of just make up, you just knew how your body would react.
0: I see. Yeah. Where,
2: yeah. With with the older insulin, and then with when things when they kind of like dialed things in with the faster acting insulins, it really it it changed the way diabetes uh, is managed or was managed mm.
0: completely. I see. Okay.
1: So then, once you got on the pump, everything mattered, right? So was there uh, was that then harder than to control? You said that was like a a turning point then in. And kind of the story was 16 insulin pump what what about that was so drastic
2: well instead of doing the injections i suddenly had this thing i had attached to me at all times mm-hmm. um when i got them we didn't have all the extra gadgets and gizmos and i'm my cartridge would fall out all the time or it would just get ripped ripped out of my stomach a lot there's a lot of issues with it um but when it worked well it worked really well and oh like and I couldn't get the insulin pump wet but I I wore it for 6 years and so I liked it enough and it controlled my insulin enough to the point where the doctors only needed they only wanted to see me once a year and if I had a problem I would give them a call like my a one c couldn't have been better um, they they called me the the well- you know a perfectly well controlled diabetic and that whatever I was doing just keep on doing it and so it didn't affect my life i think it, it the insulin pump definitely improved my life in in terms of blood sugars and stuff like that um, but then it kind of adds that magnification and intensification of keeping that blood sugar at that one hundred level. Like, ooh, nope, has has to be a hundred. Oh, mm. nope, I'm not a hundred. Let me correct. Has to be a hundred. Where kind of before that you were just, yeah, ah, one fifty, you were okay. You know, eighty-five, you're good. And and so it kind of it kind of changed. I think you become a little more involved with insulin pumps and and like the CGMs and stuff like that than if you just do regular blood tests and, and injection. Like,
1: Mm-hmm. so now are you still on a pump well i guess it's skipping a lot of parts of the story but uh are you you don't use a pump if you had this transplant then right you're you you do not do any of that kind of stuff
2: correct the tr- the transplant um makes me a non-insulin a, a non-dependent uh I'm, I'm no longer dependent on insulin so mm-hmm. a non-insulin dependent person so therefore i am no longer a diabetic. Um, my diabetes has been put on pause. Mm. So as long as this transplant keeps working, um, my body is making insulin. And so I have two pancreas, pancreas or pancreas, pancreases. <laughs> <laughs> I have two pancreases in me. Um, one oh, well. doesn't work at all. And one's ma- making, making up the insulin for me. Um, oh, no. But uh, yeah. So it, it, even to this day, I still, um, like you mentioned earlier, like it, it's, I, I had the transplant, it's been um, two years since I had it. I still look, when I look at things that I'm buying them at the store, I buy the same stuff I ate when I was a diabetic. I look at the carbs. Mm. It, it just, it's a very, it's something so ingrained in you from the age of three, when you, when you do that for so long that it, it that's a hard habit to break.
1: I imagine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I can cause there's always that, Age-old question for diabetic, like if you could take a shot or take a pill and just like wish away your diabetes, would you? And you're in a situation where it's not, but it is. I think the word you used was perfect because I got, I painted a really clear picture of when you said it's on pause, because the what ifs are there, right? And so I think that's a really good descriptor, or at least it was for me. Like I feel like I that's a good insight uh, on your mindset with everything. But you actually get to live the Oh, well now I don't technically have to count carbs. You still do, but you know, cause like you said, it's a habit kind of thing.
2: Yeah. And you know, with the situation leading up to me needing that, this transplant, it wasn't because this is something novel. It wasn't like, Oh, I had the chance to get a transplant. No, the transplant mm-hmm. saved my life and I went through hell to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there was a shot or a pill that would have cured my diabetes, I would have done it in a heartbeat, but Mm -hmm. the but the transplant is not the way to do it. Let me just (laughs) tell you
1: that. Wow. All right. So now uh, let's come back up a bit. Um, So uh, you're 16, you got up on a pump. So now what, where does the story go leading up to, whether it be the, you know, the kidney stone or anything even before that, what, where does the story go at once you're 16 now using a pump?
2: Yeah. So life just is normal. I went, I, you know, I graduated high school. I worked for a couple of years trying to figure out life. Then I went to college. Then I became a high school social studies teacher. And then I just, after doing that for three years, it just, it wasn't right for me. I, I didn't feel fulfilled. And I, didn't know what to do and um a friend of mine had just graduated law school and said you should go to law school and I was like I grew up on a farm right there's no way I'm smart enough to go to law school but I studied and I took the LSATs and I applied for colleges and I got in and I went to law school and you know I just was living my life and uh Midway through my law school career, I got a kidney stone. And um, when I went into the hospital, it turns out that it was two kidney stones, the size of a thumbnail. So I don't know like what that, what, in terms of measurement, how many millimeters that is. They, they told me, but they're like, look at your thumbnail. That's what you got stuck. Two of them stuck in your kidney, your septic. We have to go in and remove them. And the rem- having to go in and remove that caused such damage to my kidney that it, it, it destroyed it. And they ended up having to go in. They did six more surgeries. Then they finally removed the kidney altogether. And so as a diabetic, I was like, I'm not, you can't take a kidney. You know, you're, do not yeah. take my kidney. I, I'm a, I already got 30 years of this disease on this kidney. Don't take it. And um, I didn't have a choice. And then um, that's when everything changed in my life. When, when they took that kidney out, which was supposed to uh, f- fix all the issues that I was having because the kidney was scarred from the kidney stones. They didn't know what caused them. They didn't know how long they had been there. My other kidney is just fine. Um, But what messing with the kidney is kind of what started messing up my diabetes.
0: Mm. How long was that process of just taking care of the kidney?
2: Uh, A year and a half.
0: Okay. So yeah, quite a, quite a long time. And that was six surgeries?
2: Yeah. Six surgeries.
0: Wow. So, so then you, so then the kidneys, you said working on that started to impact your diabetes so what what then led into um, the next part
2: so it, it what it turned me into a welcome i mean it turned me from a well-controlled diabetic where the doctors didn't even need to see me because i was quote too perfect of a patient mm. to me not being able to control my blood sugar um and i was dealing with hypoglycemia to the point where I would just be sitting at work and I would pass out wow. or I, or a whole day would go by and I, and I would forget the entire day because you guys know what a low blood sugar feels like. You get confused. It, I, I, you know, I, I try to explain it to people. Imagine just being, you know, blackout drunk and trying to come back from that. Like you, you don't know what happens. You don't know what you did. You can't remember everything. Um, it's kind of like you're outside of your body and it, um, all of that kind of stuff. So I knew that that, be, that that was a problem about six months after it really started getting bad because I was in the courtroom. Um, I was working as a law clerk and I was in the courtroom and I, I could feel myself going low and I went to grab. Um, one of my Gatorades, which was like my emergency juice type of juice, sugary drink that I would drink. Mm-hmm. And it was all gone. And then I dug in my other pocket where I always kept candy, um, Starburst and Mentos and stuff like that. And that was all gone. And I'm not the type of person that just forgets to refill things. What ended up happening was throughout that day, I had used everything. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like I was over, I wasn't giving myself too much insulin. It, It wasn't because I wasn't eating. It just, my body wasn't responding to what was going on correctly. And so I, that is when I knew that there was a problem going on and my body wasn't reacting like it was supposed to, wasn't reacting how it did before. And that's when I really started getting concerned with my diabetes and my diabetes management and needed to start going to more doctors.
0: Yeah. So at the time you're still on the pump, right? Yes. Okay. So, so I'm, just, I'm curious. Um, I'm assuming you were trying to play with your basal rates and all that stuff to try and combat all these lows.
2: Yep. We did everything. And at the time, um, this was when CGMs just started coming out. So they really weren't that good. Um, in terms of like detecting low blood sugars and all that kind of stuff, they would alert, they would alarm you. But, but what was happening to me is I would go from a completely normal blood sugar to something where I would go unconscious within less than a minute. And so the CGM is about what, eight to 10 minutes behind live time. And if that's yeah. happening within a minute, it's not even, it's not even giving me helpful information. All it's doing is, is showing the doctors what my blood sugars are doing. So, um, I would have to rely on finger sticks and that kind of stuff. And that worked for a a little while, but you can only test yourself so many times out of fear. And, um, then I looked into getting a diabetic alert dog and I got a diabetic alert dog and that helped me out significantly with the low blood sugars. So I was having eight to 10 low blood sugars to the point of passing out per day. Wow. That's how bad it was getting. And I, um, so we ended up taking my, me off of the insulin pump because we thought it was the, um, the insulin. And we put me on two units of Lantis um, only per day. And I, was wow. still, and I was still going into the 40s um, every single day with my blood sugar. And I was eating full meals and doing everything that I could. And we couldn't figure it out. They, they yeah. didn't know what was going on.
0: Did you ever, did you ever go high?
2: I would go high and that, and that was the thing. And they said, we want you to go, we want you to stay high. Like we want you to stay in the three hundreds. Like if we can keep you in the three hundreds for two or three months, maybe we can reset your system. And that was, you know, and that was like one of the goals, but we couldn't, I I could get into the three hundreds and then 30 minutes later I would be in the forties. And it's just, and, And eventually they told me like what brittle diabetes was and it's just that you're unable to control your blood sugar and your body just doesn't respond as it's supposed to, whether it be hypo or hyperglycemia. And my issue was with hypos. Um, And sadly one bad hypoglycemia episode will kill you. And um, that's why it's so dangerous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm just even trying to wrap my mind around being so high and then dropping so low so fast so that docs had no hypothesis no like thoughts that they communicate to you why this could be happening that's that's uh at first i thought you were saying passing out i was like maybe your blood pressure was just all out of whack uh with your kidneys you know one kidney being gone uh but it's definitely you know blood sugar related as you as you said so what, what what were they trying to communicate to you at this time they just were had a bunch of question marks or what was their best guess
2: um, we, we, they thought it was other autoimmune diseases. So we started going through the checklist of just getting everything off and uh, testing for it all. Then, um, I would see nephrologists, uh, neurologist. I, you know, I, I, you name the type of doctor I saw them, you know, could it be a neuro- neurological infection where my body wouldn't respond correctly to insulin and, eventually when my nephrologist and regular doc, uh, my my um, endocrinologist my diabetic doctor really kind of started talking what 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 they found out was m- the turning point was the kidney and so w- w- with the kidney stone so what about the kidney stone made things different and when i had to go through all those surgeries it was six of them and the seventh one is when they removed it is every time I was septic, so it was poisoning my body, every, every time they had to go in and work on the kidney and, and do things, which then um, uh, made me have the hypoglycemia episodes and stuff like that, and that started damaging my other kidney. So the theory that they finally came up with is that my body um, – because of the hypoglycemia it wasn't when when my body would come back online when the brain would turn everything back on it wasn't doing it correctly so therefore my stomach wasn't digesting food enough or correctly enough to break it down properly for the insulin to attach to deliver it throughout my body to create energy and so it was kind of it was, it, it was one of those things where they, they couldn't di- directly diagnose it, but the idea that they had was that my body wasn't breaking down food correctly enough because of I was having too many hypoglycemia episodes. And my, because, because my one kidney was being damaged from all the, the hypoglycemia, the kidney itself wasn't processing insulin the way that it normally should. And so the two things kind of made just the perfect storm for the brittle hypoglycemia unawareness.
1: Wow. So prior to the surgeries, you had no other autoimmunities, right? Correct. Wow. What a drastic, drastic change. So you already said that from point one surgery with uh, the kidney stone the last kidney surgery that was over the course of a year and a half yep so what was going on then outside of the hospital well at that moment what were you uh trying to live life like i mean that seems pretty miserable and and self-consuming uh you know going through all that
2: i was living life as normal as possible i was um i finished law school i God, I was working. I, you know, I had my diabetic alert dog with me. I thought everything was good. I, you know, My diabetic alert dog was catching lows. I, I, I was only passing out a few times a week. I thought I was doing great. Um, but wow. when the doctors would see me, they're like, Brandon, like, how are you standing in front of me? Like, how is this even possible? But mentally, I was like, no, like, I need to get back to life. I have life to live. This is not going to stop me. But really, I was running myself into the ground by just push, pushing my body way too hard, and that probably played a role in it as well. Um, and yeah, but like, in, but in terms of doctors, you name it, uh, gurus, every natural path, every anyone you could think of, I tried and I went and I I attempted everything because I said this this is ridiculous. I went from my entire life being well controlled, being able to handle this. And now we, we, we can't even, we can't, no matter what, it, if I were to do the same exact thing every single day, even as a diabetic, there is no guaranteed outcome of what it, what's going to happen. Now there's no guaranteed outcome of what's going to happen in the next minute with me. And so when you're starting to, to deal with that, you start gaining a lot of anxiety and fear And then you get to a point where you can't drive anymore, you get to a point where you can't work anymore. And when doctors don't have answers for you, you're kind of left in this state of fear of what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? The people who are supposed to help me kind of don't want to help me because I'm a liability to them. You know, Uh, they, they, they have no answers for me. So that's when doctor shopping really became a popular term for me because I made an appointment with every single doctor I could possibly think of and find. And I would go to every appointment to see what they had to say. And finally, um, it took almost two years and I walked into a new doctor's office. It was this little doctor's office walked into the room and I was sat down and the doctor came in and she sat down. She had her um, iPad with her, with all my records. And she says, Brandon, I've seen one patient like you. Most of us and this endocrinologists never see this in our entire life. We barely learn about it. It's called brittle hypoglycemia unawareness and you have it there. We don't know why you get it, um, or what ends up happening. We don't know what's going on in your body, but all we know is that if you don't find a way to cure it or be able to handle it, you're going to die in less than two years. And my recommendation for you is to get a pancreas-only transplant because that is the only solvent to your problem. And, and so it was kind of like, she just laid it out right there, right there um, on the table and told me exactly what I needed to do. And that was the first time I really heard pancreas only transplant and that it was the solvent for the low blood sugar issue and that I truly was a brittle diabetic and it like she really, she, she, um, she lit a fire under my ass to start looking into things again and to start trusting doctors and to have hope because before that it was just, I, I was surviving and that, that, and that's not a, that's not a fun way to live.
0: Yeah, imagine there's a lot of mixed feelings in that appointment of, I mean, well, I mean, you already had a lot of fear and just being scared and helpless because you can't find the answers anywhere else. But then it, I'm sure it was really nice just to hear somebody confidently saying to you what your problem was and what you needed to do about it.
2: Yeah. It, it, I needed, I needed to hear that. like. I really needed that. And it was so interesting because she didn't even meet me. And she came in the room and sat down and just like stated it. Like She just, she just flat out stated it. <laughs> um, and it really it was one of those things. If you don't get this done, you will be dead in less than two years. And, that's, and she also was the one that said, you know, this wouldn't be a problem if you, if you had brittle diabetes and it was hyperglycemia where your blood sugar was high all the time. Because you know there are, there are other ways that we can get your blood sugar down. But hypoglycemia, one, one of them, one bad one, and she goes, you've had too many of those already, but one of them could just kill you flat out. Mm-hmm. And she said, that's no way to live. And like, basically everything in my head, the way I was thinking, <laughs> she basically said for me, I didn't have to tell her. I didn't have to ask her. She knew exactly what to do. And it was the first time in a very long time that I felt actually cared for um, medically. And um, that doctor had my best interest in her mind and um, gave me proper medical advice on what to do. And had it not been for that appointment, I probably would have, you know, I I don't know. I don't think any other doctor would have recommended that. Because uh, a pancreas-only transplant is super rare, and it's not normally taught um, in diabetic communities because it's it's very frowned upon because they're not successful or not very successful.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, at least I've gotten that a lot growing up and throughout my diabetic life of oh, like, why don't you just get a transplant? Like, why don't you just get a new pancreas and. Uh, you don't even need to be like really involved in in the medical side of things and just know that that's not an option or else they'd be offering left and right, you know, like it'd be way more common. Uh, There's a reason why it's not. And so, so at this point, you know, once you heard that you had all these emotions flushing through your head. So after that appointment, what was your mindset? What was your thought process right then? Once you left that office,
2: I was ready to get back to life. Um, mm. I, immediately I was like, okay, what do I have to do? Like, what are this, like, who do I, who do I talk to? What steps do I take? Where do I go? What do I do? And it, it came down to, um, be, so here's the steps. If you need a transplant, a doctor has to recommend you to a transplant hospital. They have to, they, that doctor has to be able to have, re- um, privileges to that hospital. And so she was able to recommend me to one hospital, um, in Arizona. Um, and it's not a very good hospital. They're the ones that messed up my kidney (laughs) and did all the kidney surgeries. And so immediately I was like, Oh heck no, I don't want to go to them, (laughs) but at least I'll find out some information. Um, but they refused to see me at, or they denied me candidacy before even seeing me as a patient because I only had 50% kidney function because I had only one kidney and, um, I didn't, uh, the insurance didn't cover a pancreas only transplant. So because I couldn't prove I had the funds up front, they wouldn't consider me, uh, uh for transplant. And so those are the two wow. things that I was up against in that I now had to overcome in terms of, uh, in addition to, um, the hypoglycemia.
1: Wow. So at that moment then, well, before I go into the insurance denial part, the, the kidney and only having 50% kidney functionality, uh, their biggest concern there was um, recovery and, and being able to handle a surgery and coming out after that, correct? They, they, they didn't want you going in and just start messing around and not being able to recover and blood pressure and all the, these things. That was why that tick was there, correct? Is that what they communicated to you?
2: They didn't communicate that to me, but my nephrologist communicated that to me. Uh-huh. Um, they, they wouldn't at the time. It's, it's, so what it comes to transplants is because they're done in private hospitals. Private hospitals thrive on success, uh, numbers of success, and they only want to give you a transplant if they know it's going to be successful. So mm-hmm. um, it's, a very, it's a very political type system where you have to play the cards right. And kidney function with two kidneys with was 50%. They didn't realize that I, that I had lost a kidney. And it, when you, when you put my age into it and um, at the time, I think I was 30. um, So when you put my age into it, that wasn't taken into account, but yes, basically what you're saying is kind of what the nephrologist said, but he says, that's, total nonsense, because anyone my age can recover from surgery. And, Mm -hmm. and so he, and so the nephrologist is the person who recommended me to Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And they're the ones that ended up taking care of me. And they saw the bigger picture. Um, And the Mayo Clinic is a private hospital as well. And they are more willing to take on riskier patients, knowing that they can have a successful outcome. And so had it, had I not been in contact with that doctor who referred me to the right Mayo clinic, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened as well. Um, because he, he's like the first, he, he was the, my kidney doctor since the kidney transplant, he was really good. And the first thing he said, he goes, he goes, what, of course your kidney functions 50%. You only have one kidney. That means it's doing great. <laughs> and so like it, just, his, like his outlook was just so much different. And so mm-hmm. That, that again, it lit a spark under it lit a spark under me because it just continued to fuel the fire of okay, don't give up on this yet. There's still hope, um, and so then I then then I got then he had admitting powers to Mayo Clinic, and, and he and, and he as a nephrologist um, sent me over there for a pancreas only transplant, not my endocrinologist, my my kidney doctor. So it's just it's kind of funny how how it all worked out. And that's Damn. when I found out. Yeah. And that's when I found out at Mayo Clinic that well, the first appointment was $1,800 just to even be seen um, Ooh, to see if, I could, if they would consider me to be, I had to pay cash for that um, to see if they would consider me uh, to, to go on for the process. And then when I was told that they would, they would need $20,000 up front to go through all of the process to see if I would even be considered, like healthy enough to receive a transplant. And then once I was determined to be healthy enough to receive a transplant, they would need $250,000 up front to put me on the transplant list and to pay for the transplant.
1: Holy cow. Wow. So before the story of, of how you reacted to those finances (laughs) before you heard, heard those numbers, what do you think, Kept your mindset so positive. It sounded almost sounded like bit by bit, after each incident, a little bit of your hope was getting eaten away. Yeah. But you were still looking forward, forward and seeing light in some way. So, up to this point, you know what what drive, what internal drive did you have that made that possible? You you know you were getting punched left and right nonstop for years. What kept you going? Even up to this far at this point in the story,
2: you know, there's this there's this song that I that I like to compare it to, and it's called "I Lived" by One Republic, and it's it's about falling down and getting back up, and no matter what, be, always being able to say "I lived." And in the music video, they interview uh, a young guy. I don't know. He's maybe. 14, 15 years old with, um, cystic fibrosis and showing him living life to the fullest, even though he knows he has a short life ahead of him, even with lung transplant and stuff like that. And so that was one of the things that I looked at, um, that I like to compare it to as I had that attitude where, you know, I could have died at any moment. Um, Anything could have taken me out, whether it be a car or a low blood sugar. Um, But I wanted to live. If I would have died, I wanted to say that I lived the life the best that I absolutely could. And so for me to fight every day, even though the hope was being taken away from me, was me trying to live the best I could and say that I lived for that day. I did the best I could and I would have no regrets. And that is that was my mindset and that is what got me through it. And had I not had that, I don't think I would have been able to make it. Because you can only handle so many blows in life. And when you're laying down and you still get kicked constantly, you know, you reach a point where you just can't take it anymore. And I was getting there. And um that's when I found the doctor who told me about the transplant. And then it wasn't like, oh, this guaranteed fix, it was like a possibility, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, and then to get told no again, then it kind of like took all that hope away, and then I talked to another doctor, and it kind of like lit it back up, and so it's this, it's this like, it's like a horse race of that give and take of the horse, you know, going back and forth, like what's, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, can it happen, but at least I know that every day I gave it my all, and that if I didn't make it any further I could have said I did it with no regrets I did my best
1: mm. momentum or a remember that you're mortal wow uh, that's crazy yeah and that reminded me too of uh, you know I think it was Rocky rocky four no Rocky five I don't know the where he's teaching his son how to box and, he, and he's all like you know it ain't about how hard you get hit it's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward how much you can yep. take. And keep moving forward and that's exactly what uh, you were doing you know you were getting towards your limit but if you keep going and keep going eventually you'll hit that you know that jackpot that sweet spot which that you know one endocrinologist that said recommended that surgery was that sweet spot for you so that's that's a that's amazing that you're able to just have that mindset leading up to this point now this is only I would imagine halfway through your challenges like there's still much more to go uh, that life has for you but That's amazing that uh, you made it to that far and were able to hold on for so long.
2: Yeah. And it's not like, oh, like, you know, I'm so special. Every day was this victory. It was like, (laughs) no, this freaking sucks. But, you know, I woke up today and I'm just I'm going to give it my all. Also, I just got done with law school. Like I, I have this whole life to live. This is my second career. I haven't even, I haven't even stepped toe into what the potential of, of life could be like next for me. And like that, you know, like that was a big driving factor in life and, and um, being prevented from doing so many things. I'm like, well, I'm going to make up for it. And, and so like, you know, I would, I would change that mindset from being feeling like a victim or feeling like I I missed out on so much to say, okay, well you know what? Um I'm gonna do the best that I can today. And when I get the opportunity, I am going to take advantage of it. I'm not gonna let it go. I'm not gonna let it pass. And and I that that really is I don't know where it came from. I don't know what influence it was precisely on me, but that's just how my mindset was. I, I just I that the, the aspect was life hadn't been lived enough yet and I had more to go and it, it proved it correct every day that I woke up like it, it like re that the sun rises every day no matter what I do or do not do and I can at least count on that like there's always something I can count on and so even that kept me going at times.
1: Wow uh, simply simply amazing so you had this mindset now, and then you sat down, you made it to the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, paid $1,800 for your first visit. You had a $20,000 bill just to get tested. And then they sat you down and said, you need $250,000 up front just to be on the transplant list. Uh, so then how, did, how does the story continue from there?
2: Yeah, so the question then comes up like, well then how do you get $250,000 when you don't come from money? you Mm -hmm. have $250,000 in student loans. You don't, you (laughs) You you know what I mean? You're not working. You can't work. You can't get a loan. Um, I saw my car maybe get $3,000. Like, you know, you really, Mm -hmm. you rack your brain. And um, uh, I had, I Had to move in with somebody because my blood sugars were so bad that if I wasn't up in the morning, they would come and check on me to see if I was alive. Like it was, sure. it was, I mean, it I had it, it was bad, and so, um, she was really good. So, what she said is, Oh, we got to put you on GoFundMe, and I was like, Are you crazy? I am not telling my people, do not need to know that I am going through this, like, no, mm-hmm. you know this is just crazy. And she goes, nope, you have to go on GoFundMe. And I said, absolutely not. I'm never going to do that. Because I grew up not telling people I was a diabetic. No one knew I was a diabetic. It was looked down upon if I was a diabetic. You were discriminated against because you were a diabetic. Because no one understood what diabetes was. The assumption is that you do it to yourself and you have something wrong with you. And so I didn't, all, all of a sudden, I didn't want the world or the internet to know that, I was suffering and I was at this point of death, but she broke me down enough. And, uh, my, my mom was talking to me as well. And she just said, well, what do you have to lose? Like, like seriously, like, like what do you have to lose by just making it public? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, my dignity, my pride, um, you know, being embarrassed. And she goes, yeah, well, what does it matter? And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so I wrote up a letter explaining everything, exactly everything that I had been through, all of the options, what all the doctors said, what I could do, what I've tried to, what I tried to do. Um, and my roommate made the GoFundMe. And then I also sent letters to f- close friends and family. And one of my expectation of people at the time was no one gave a crap. Um, that they would think that this is just a bunch of BS and no one would want to help. And I didn't expect them to help because who wants to give hard earned money to something that isn't guaranteed or someone they don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, and here they think that I'm like this successful attorney. Um, but we made, it, we made it go live um, and nothing really happened. And that was my expectation. And then I got a call from a family member who said a lot of really not nice things. And it was kind of like, how dare you bring shame on the family by making that public um, and stuff like wow. that. And that was my expectation of, of what was going to happen. And then a few days later I received the $20,000 anonymous donation to get that first part of this, of the, um, to see if I could qualify for surgery, donated, And that's what got the ball rolling. So I called Mayo Clinic and I said, I got $20,000. When can I get my first appointment? (laughs) And, uh, they said, okay, well, you know, you know, bring us a check. I said, I'll bring you cash. And so, um, I got them the money. And within two days I had the appointments to start going and having, um, that test done where they give you that stuff to, uh, on the treadmill with the heart. And I had to have x-rays and MRIs and, and all kinds of psychological evaluations and surgical evaluations and, and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that I would make a great uh, transplant uh, candidate. Um, I just needed $250,000. <laughs> and um, so then once people <laughs> kind of, once people kind of heard that someone randomly d- gave me the money and, uh, um, to do that. Then people, other people started sharing and donating. And I got calls from people whose um, family members went through similar things who had other organs done and they had such a hard time with insurance and they knew what I was going through. And that's when I kind of found out that there was a community of people out there who cared And there's a community of people out there who have been through things that you would never think of or never know because they didn't tell anybody else. And I wasn't alone in this fight. There were other people rooting for me. And it really changed my perspective on life and of people because I thought that people were just out for themselves and this proved all of that wrong. And in three months I raised the $250,000 and Sent it over to Mayo Clinic, and I was listed um, <clears throat> the next day. I was actively listed the next day for transplant when they got that money.
0: Wow, that's got to be that's got to be a, one heck of a great feeling. Especially, I mean, to be able to do it. I mean, three months. I'm sure felt like forever, but um, I feel like that was a pretty pretty good time frame uh, to raise that much money. And um, I'm sure that just felt great just not only being able to do something that you wanted and needed to do um, but then to have all that support from people that you knew and maybe didn't even know um, and just I bet it made you just feel loved and appreciated
2: yeah and it was crazy because had it not been for social media that never would have happened had it not been me me taking that step of vulnerability you know, having nothing to lose, it never would have happened had it not been for friends, family, strangers—just everybody rooting for me—which was so weird. And I'm like, I've always been self-sufficient. Like, this is just weird. But it, but but it was so, like, being um, or feeling like it, feeling like it was okay to be sick, like like it was okay. People understood it. Um, it was a, it was a really great relief. And getting all the messages and people saying we're praying for you and people saying we're thinking about you and, and people saying we want to, you know, like we want to know more about you and just all that kind of stuff just blew my mind because I'm thinking, you know, you have your own life to live. Like why are you, you know, why would you want to know more about me or why would you why would you think about giving money to me? And I didn't I didn't question it, but it definitely showed me a different side of humanity. Where I thought that everybody only cared about themselves, only cared about the car they drive, only cared about the clothes that they wore, in um, a consumption society, and it really, it really changed my perspective that humans um, are a human society and they care about each other, and I, and that was that it was pretty amazing, and so I know that it's that it's not a normal thing to be able to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars in three months, because. If you look at most people's um, GoFundmes, you can't do that unless you go viral, like in the news, or um, you know you got celebrities supporting you and stuff like that. It really it doesn't happen. This it, this happened, and it was to me. It was meant to be, and I just I took it for what it was. I I'm I'm, I'm not questioning it. This is this is me. This is this is me saying how thankful I am. For um, everything and what I and and what I went through during that time, and then to get that um, phone call saying that i that I was actively listed, it was just like a breath of fresh air. It was like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this. This is I ha- I was told by so many people, even at Mayo Clinic, of how impossible it was to get a pancreas only transplant because it's so rare and they rarely do them and they don't like to do them because they're not super successful. And there's, they've never seen anyone in my position before and no one has ever raised the money for their surgery. Everyone says they're going to do it. And it's just, it's just impossible, you can't do it. And I did it and um, they listed me and it felt, it felt very good and I felt vindicated um, for all the negative people around me in my time of sickness. And instead of it being an encouragement, it was always just like this. They wanted to bring you down a little bit more. It felt good. It felt good on their end because it's kind of like, you know, you're getting your expectations too high, lower them a little bit. It's impossible for it to happen. And it was like, I want to prove you wrong. So, um, I think all that kind of played into it of me not giving up because it would have been much easier or it could have at any moment happened where I just said I'm not going to take the extra time tonight to make sure I have every checks and balance system in to get up and set my alarm for every hour and to drink my juice and to make sure my I wake up when my dog wakes me up and to make sure I told my roommate what's going on like you know there's so many things that could have gone wrong or I just could have given up at any time and I didn't it and I am so glad that I did not.
1: Wow. Yeah, you had a lot of opportunities to to bow out and quit uh, so, so far into this road that you traveled on. So many times where you could have stopped. And, uh, you know, as a diabetic, you know, type one or two there's simple things that you got to do not checking your sugar every like 10 minutes or every hour while you sleep. But there's still things that's like you get home at night and you don't want to change your pump or you don't want to take your shot or you don't want to care. And it's literally just, you feel almost abused because you want to just live life. And then there's this thing pulling you back to reality. Uh, but in your situation, it's even more frequent. <laughs> it's, it's even, it was even more uh, of a situation where it's like, if you miss like three three things to do that's three things in one night and therefore that's going to affect however many more chain events after that like that's such a brutal situation uh i don't think i don't think very many people can understand to the gravity of how how much you had to battle every single day not even the whole fundraising part of it but just battling to get to that point is amazing and insane and beautiful and all of it
2: Yeah. And it just, it's the aspect of just survival. It's amazing what the body is and mind is capable of that you don't even realize um, mm-hmm. when you're just trying to survive uh, the the body goes into this mode of survival and it does whatever, whatever it needs to do. If you decide you want to survive, it, it will do what it needs to do to, to survive. And it, mm-hmm. it is a, the body is an amazing, amazing thing. What it, what it can live through, what it can survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what it can handle, and um, you know, I I I really learned that, and I I I you know, I've seen it firsthand. <laughs> um, because again, I was told it was impossible for me to be alive. You know, it was impossible for my blood sugars to be that low for that long. And it's just, I'm like, well then why am i here if it's such an Mm -hmm. impossibility you know i then why am i here and and i'm doing my best and um so that's where i was and um they had the money and i got listed for transplant and now then i was told i just had to wait and so (laughs) i just had to wait
1: so you spent so I mean, first of all, what, what a law of attraction, you know, of you finally, you got that one honorable and and anonymous donation. And then just, it kept, it just one thing led to another, just kept rolling in and you have, you were building momentum. Life was building momentum around you. You were dancing and moving with, with life. And then through all this momentum, then you gotta, you gotta stop and wait. (laughs) How did that feel? That was, I think that
2: was one of the hardest parts because, Mm -hmm you're told, okay, you need to have your phone, and then you need to have two other people on the list, and you need to have this call list, and you need to have a caretaker, and you, like there's all these things that you need to have in order, and, mm-hmm. uh, and immediately I had it in order, like everything is good to go, everyone had to take a class, everyone, so everyone knew what was going on, um, they had, a, you know, they would go through the recovery process, I had everything prepared for that, I had something set up for my dog. <laughs> so, like when I got called in, he'd be taken care of. Like I had everything ready to go. And it could have been up to a five year wait list. And wow. they said, and they said, expect the call tomorrow or for up to five years. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I'm. I'm a, I'm, I was told I'm not supposed to live past two years, and, and uh, you know, like, we're getting closer to that time, and so my whole thing to focus just on not caring so much just about everything, I'm going to lessen my doctor's appointments. just like, my whole thing was just to get the stress and, like, to get my body ready for if I got that call. I would be ready. I wouldn't be in a state of low blood sugar where I couldn't respond to phone calls, where um, I, I, was going to, I was going to be ready and prepared and able and just looking forward to that phone call. And so it kind of turned, it went from me going to doctor's appointments, doctor's appointments, doctor's appointments, you know, how am I going to get a ride? Who's going to help take care of me? Who's, and who's going to look out for me? To, to consolidating it down to, okay, now I know what I am looking forward to is this call. Whatever happens afterwards is going to happen. And it's going to, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's just this one call. And so life just kind of just really calmed down. And I really had this just sense of peace because of how much I had been through knowing that it, all I needed was that call. And it, it, it was a pretty interesting thing where I didn't have anxiety. It was, it, it was very um, peaceful knowing that I was in good hands with the Mayo Clinic. They knew what they were doing. Um, and uh, in terms of waiting, it wasn't like this impatient, like, oh my gosh, when's that phone going to ring? When's that phone going to ring? It was, it's going to ring when it's going to ring. And in the meantime, I need to keep myself busy by checking my blood sugars, listening to my CGM making sure that my dog is happy and and alerting me and just trying to stay as conscious as possible from those low blood sugars. And that's kind of like where my whole focus went. So that's probably where my focus should have been the entire time when I was going through this, but I had to deal with all the doctors and get the the transplant, figuring out what was wrong with me. And so it it gave myself um, some time to ponder and to think and to really prepare for the potential of a successful transplant.
1: Wow. Having the, having life slow you down is such a, a lesson that so many of us, especially here in the States could learn, myself included. Uh, And it seems like you accepted that lesson with grace uh, opposed to increase your anxiety. Like you kind of said, it, what do you think about that? Uh, was it just because the confidence of how much things just kind of came to a, one after another and just felt like blessings or, or was there something you told yourself to try to switch your mindset of this, of this, how am I going to survive? Because the survival mode in the brain in the limbic brain is so different than being at a, at a restful, peaceful, parasympathetic state, you know? So what about that, those moments, once you got the money, you got everything kind of in place to now let's just wait. What about that? you know what happened there to really accept that i
2: i I think for me, it was knowing that I did every single thing that I could, and there was nothing else I could do hmm. i could i couldn't cause i couldn't cause, co- my organ was to come from someone who passed away and hmm. had the same exact blood type as me that was in my um, Uh, the zone of where I, of where I was for the transplant list of where I was listed, like, like all the cards had to be played right. And I wasn't wishing for someone to die. And, and so there was nothing else I could do. Everything was in order. Everything was paid. I, I, you know, like it was, I think it was just knowing I did absolutely every single thing I could. I had everything organized and it allowed me just to have that moment of just like a breath of fresh air to just sit and stop and, and, and wait for that next step because I, I was, it was out of my control at that point. There was nothing else
0: I could do.
1: Mm. Wow.
0: Great. You got something? Yeah. I mean, what was that? What was that next step? When did, when did you get that call?
2: So, I was listed in, I wanna say late October of 2018. And every month, when, when you're on the transplant list, every month you have to go give a sample of, for an HLA. So, when they, they already know your blood type, and then they, they uh, under the microscope, they put the bloods together, the two blood samples, mine and the donors, and they see how they react. And if, if the HLAs do not, Uh, react well, they know that it's not going to be a successful organ transplant. And so Mm. I did my October one. I did my November one. I just did my December one. So I think it was, you know, I was listed. And then I got the day, uh, the day after Christmas, December 26th, um, in the evening, uh, I got the phone call. And it was from 480 area code, which was um, Cedar—I mean, not Cedar Sinai—uh, male Clinic, and I was like, "There, oh, someone's calling me." And uh, the only people that would call me were, were people that I would know. So yeah. like, I wonder what this is about. So I answered it, and on the other line, the lady says, "Are you ready for a new pancreas?" Like, you know, like, <laughs> "Hey, your name is called. Like, come on yeah. down." And <laughs> wow. I was, and, and I was like, "Are you serious?" Like, I I, I use I use serious. She goes, "Yes." We have a brain dead donor that is an exact match. We're currently harvesting the organ. Can you be here within two hours? And I said, yes, I can. And so she said, okay, come in. And so I was actively listed for two months, officially two months. And I got the call the day after Christmas in 2018 to go in for the organ transplant. And so the, the interesting thing is with transplants is that they tell you, you'll probably get called in a good three, four times and get ready for surgery because they, they prepare you for surgery. And then the organ arrives and they look at the organ and see if it's going to work, if anything happened during travel and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, ah, this is probably a practice run because it's too soon, right? It's, this is too soon. Um, and I got in there and they said everything looks good and um uh, so by the time i walked in the hospital it was about 9 30 at night i believe um the uh the er the emergency room doors opened and they were just waiting for me they're like come on come on hurry (laughs) up run run and i'm thinking oh my gosh like like what am i you know what is going on and they're like take off your clothes and I'm like, where? They're like, right now, start taking them off. And I'm like, taking off my shirt, <laughs> taking off my pants. And so like, I put the thing on. So I guess that they had the organ already for a while. So I don't know where it came from. Um, and, and so I'm sitting there, they're drawing blood out of both arms. I'm answering all the questions like, when did you last take your medication? They need to know, they need to make sure that all, um, they have all the labs processed. And within like five minutes, they had processed all the labs. And I was like, how is this even possible? Um, And then you have the anesthesiologist coming in. You have everyone coming in and talking to you. And then the surgeon walked in and it was, and what the surgeon said, and it just completely calmed my nerves um, when she walked in, because I didn't even notice. And she said, where's Boone? And Boone is my service dog that I had with me at all my appointments. And she remembered his name. And she was the surgeon that I had met for my consultation months earlier. And when I was like, are you my surgeon? She was like, yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and do the surgery cause it's a perfect match. It was like, it, I, 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 don't, I don't know what like Nirvana, I don't know what the right word is, but it was like the most peaceful feeling came over me. Like I was at the right place at the right time with the right person and they were ready for me. And um, so she says, I'm gonna go back and we're gonna bring you back any minute now and we're going to transplant you. And uh, within 20 minutes of me arriving at the hospital, I was under anesthesia, getting um, ripped open for the pancreas
1: transplant.
0: Wow. Yeah, hearing, hearing that story uh hearing them tell you to run i'm like what are they trying to do give you a little blood sugar
2: <laughs> well yeah well that was the thing you know and i was like well what what if i go hypo they're like we we have everything to take care of it don't wait we'll be testing your blood sugar the whole time and i you know like, like that was my whole concern because i am um, i had my cgm on me i had a pump on me i had like all these things like no they're um uh the uh anesthesiologist ripped it out he goes you don't need this anymore he ripped it out and I was like don't throw that away I need that pump and so, like it's like it's just it's a moment of chaos and
1: how dramatic!
2: when they're ready they're ready let me tell you wow yeah and that is an experience like when I think back on it I mean it was just crazy and I just you know you just listen to whatever they say they're very organized they're with it they know exactly what they want to do And if they have the organ that that they think is going to work, hell or or high water, they're going to get you in there and they're going to get you ready for it. Um, And so I was used to going into surgeries out of like, I was in just such pain from my kidney. And when I would wake up, I would be in such pain because they'd fill your body with gases and um, to do all the laparoscopic surgeries and stuff like that. And it just, it always hurts. And when I woke up from this surgery, I was all alone. It was very early in the morning. The surgery was about six hours. And there was one nurse poking my stomach. And so I just, I just, I woke up naturally without someone yelling in my face, Brandon, wake up, Brandon, wake up. And um, I kind of woke up um, and I felt great. And I said, was the transplant successful? And she says, yeah, your blood sugar is 84. And like my mind was blown because that was the first time my blood sugar had been above 40 in almost a year and a half. I would function at an average blood sugar of 40. Wow. And so um, she says the, the, um, the transplant is working. It's producing insulin. Your blood sugar is stable. We're testing it every minute. And like, it just, it, it was too good to be true. Like it, I was like, am I dreaming? It is like, like what is going on? Like, and, 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 um, everything happened exactly how it was supposed to. Wow.
1: wow, <laughs> That's, that's purely insane. So were you in, were you in California then or how far away were you from the hospital in Arizona?
2: I was in Arizona. So For that two months before the, from the time I got listed to the time I got called, I was pretty much home. I didn't leave. I didn't, I I couldn't drive my, you know, my, for my blood sugars and all that kind of stuff. Um, But because of Christmas and the holidays... I had two friends from college who were home. They didn't go anywhere. And they're like, we're going to go up to the mountains. And I was like, Nope, we're not because they don't have service and it's too far away. (laughs) And they said, no, we're taking you out of the house for Christmas. And so it was uh, just under two hours away. It's a town called Flagstaff in Arizona. And um, so we went up there for Christmas. And it was kind of just hanging out. They knew my, uh, my low blood sugars. They, um, I would sip on juice, um, gave the orange Gatorades the whole time to keep my blood sugar up. up. And if my blood sugar went down, they knew how to give me glucagon and, and, and call, um, emergency. So I felt, I felt safe around them. Um, but they were right. I needed to get out of the house. It was important. Um, But it just so happened that I was up in Flagstaff when I got the call. (laughs) And so that was the question. Could I have been there in two hours? And yeah, we got there in two hours driving 95 down the freeway um, to get me there. And uh, so it was just, yeah, it was one of those things where – It it, it happened because it was meant to be, whether it be from will or whether you know it be a miracle, whatever it is, it, it happened because it was meant to happen. There's no other way to explain any of that kind of stuff.
1: Amazing, what a yeah, what a like almost divine intervention or will or all of it. I mean, you were right place at the right time, you had so much momentum building for you and how many how many lessons have you learned along that just that part of that chapter you know of that story uh to get to that moment all to wake up with a, a nurse poking your stomach and you asking did it did it work and she said yeah and uh what a what a cool end of that that first part of that saga um that that's purely amazing so now with this, I don't. I think we should probably clarify too, because I'm not a surgeon. I don't fully know. You keep saying that, an, a pancreas-only transplant is, is very rare. And you said now you have two pancreas or pancreas, in, you know, in your body. So, uh, can you t- kind of talk about why that surgery is a little bit different? Uh, you know, why they didn't remove the other one? You know, and how that's different from you know, maybe a a swap, I'm not sure the technical term of that at the top of my head, but can you just elaborate a little bit more on that part of it too?
2: Yeah. So, um, the pancreas transplant is rare because it's a very, very delicate organ. They compare the organ to transplanting two pieces of tissue paper and (laughs) jello. And so if it gets a small blood clot, if you, if you, um, fold it the wrong way. There's so many things that can go wrong with it that hospitals just simply don't like transplanting them because uh, they've been doing them for over 40 years, but the risk is too big for those, for those success numbers. Um, And so uh, the other thing is that diabetics uh, becoming a brittle diabetic is very rare. That alone is very rare. And so this treatment for brittle diabetes is, is, is so rare that they do less of 100 of them per year. If you, if you look it up, um, look up like how many pancreas transplants are done per year in the United States, pancreas only. Because generally when you get a pancreas is you get it with a kidney because you're a diabetic, your kidneys went out and they can give you both of the organs at the same time. And then your rejection rate is much lower because um, when you have both organs, the body isn't trying to fight them nearly as much. And so it just, it's more successful. And the reason why it's not covered by insurance is because in the Affordable Care Act, um, a pancreas-only transplant is an optional coverage where every other organ, um, a kidney, a liver, a lung, a heart, are all necessary organs and a pancreas isn't because you can control it with insulin and, or diet. And so <clears throat> it's an optional coverage that Medicare, Medicaid or most insurances do not cover. You can find exceptions very rarely. Um, and I tried and I sued and it, and it, and it didn't work. Um, <clears throat> and you know, while it's medically necessary and they cover medically necessary things Uh, it's, it's, it's an optional coverage and they simply don't have to cover it. And, and then when it comes to them, actually with transplants, they don't remove the organ and, and replace a new one because what they found is you have a better success rate. And this is, this is the same with kidneys. They leave your old kidneys in as well. Um, by leaving the old organs in the body is under less stress and so when they they just they unattach the ne- the necessary parts but they but they let everything else like the blood flow and everything go um stick with the old organs so your like your pancreas is behind your stomach and your intestines kind of uh it's behind that and your back it's a very hard organ to get to surgically so in order to remove that it would be very difficult number 1 mm-hmm. and then number 2 they they put the uh, transplanted pancreas um, let me let me try to let me try to put it in your head in the right way so if you were to take your right hand and and put your index finger at your belly button and then move your hand down all the way down is all the way down one hand and to the right one hand kind of like in the corner of that little crux of the corner of the hip um, where your small intestines are they attach the pancreas to the small intestines and they attach the arteries to the two main arteries that are running through your leg and so that's what feeds it the blood and then it 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 attaches to the small intestines um, instead of the stomach and that's what they found to be the most successful place to attach it so they are able to take some of the small intestine from the donor and attach it to help keep it alive and going. And so they keep the old ones in to have less shock on the body. And then where they place them is the best place in the body that, that they can find instead of just reattaching them to the same spots within the body.
1: Hmm. Wow. So with that traumatic of a surgery, you know, and, and when you woke up uh, kind of fast forwarding a little bit, have you ever met the family uh, of, the, of the individual who passed away and then you, you ended up uh, taking his or her pancreas?
2: No. Um, and I, I haven't because I don't – number one, um, my transplant still isn't considered a success. It has successfully been transplanted. But Mm -hmm. I have been in rejection four times and I just got treated for, I was in the hospital and I got treated for rejection last month. So it's not considered a a fully successful transplant yet. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to give false like information to anybody. Um, And number two, I have to, it's done through a third party and the other family has to also reach out and then they Mm -hmm. would put us in touch. And, um, at one point I think I will be ready for that, but I look at it from my point of view and my, my point of view is if somebody was able to use any part of me to better their life, I am very happy for that. I don't need to know who that is or who Mm -hmm. it goes to. Um, there are a lot of people who care because it saved their life and it, 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 they're very emotional about it and they want to know. And there's a lot of families who want to know where their organs, where the organs went to and stuff like that. And so I, I will at some point, but I have not reached that, that point yet. And, and, I, and the gravity of the organ donation and knowing that I am alive because someone died, you know, does not escape me. I, I am very aware And that is what makes me so thankful every single day because I am able to live because someone else gave me part of them when they passed away. That's a pretty powerful move to be able to go out with um, as a person. And so that's why it's so important to be an organ donor because you get to save people's lives, which is pretty amazing.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, how, so with this, you woke up from surgery, how was the recovery process from the surgery?
2: So the recovery process for me was about eight weeks. Um, my second or third week in, I started my first round of rejection. Um, at six weeks, I then went into another round of rejection, which they treat with high or thymoglobin. There's, there's like four or five different drugs they treat it with. And, um, my body responded to it well, and, um, but then they have to keep a closer eye on you. So what the recovery consists of is you letting your body heal. And then you go into the clinic and you get your blood work drawn and you see a doctor about the the results. And you look at everything for six weeks, three times a week. So it's basically going to the doctor constantly. And then as things improve and they know that you're doing better and you're, you're, you're getting active and you're getting your staples removed and everything's healing well, then they start encouraging you to be more active and start exercising and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I would say I was in month two, I was um, with a physical therapist. Because all my muscles from all the hypoglycemia and stuff had been atrophied, I it was bad. And I we started on balance, and so I would say I was healed um, by month two, well enough to have gone, you know, started working on my body. Um, mentally, I felt great right away. There, were, you know, I was just I was ready to conquer the world. I felt like Superman. I was like, when can I plan my first vacation? You know, like you know what I mean. Um, but physically it does, it takes a toll. The drugs, um, are extremely strong that you take every day to suppress your immune system. Um, they are not kind on the body. They have terrible side effects. Um, and to get the dosing right is very difficult. And then, um, going through the rejection treatments are, aren't fun. It brings up a lot of things like, oh, did I make the, what did I do wrong? Did it, You know? Do, did I eat something wrong did I, you know did I catch a virus like what's going on and so um, there's just a, there's a lot to process um, but the healing process for that is, is the longest out of all the surgeries I had have, had had and that's because they got to open you completely up remove your intestines and, and, and attach everything. Well while I wasn't in a lot of pain it just took a long time to heal. Cause I'm cut from my sternum to about two inches below my belly button. And so all that had to heal back up.
0: Wow. That's a, I mean, that's a lot long, and I'm sure it's a continual process. Um, so how many, how many medications or drugs are you on right now just to maintain? So there's
2: three main ones that you take to, uh, suppress the immune system. And, um, we're constantly switching those out. Um, but you take pregnazone, that's one of the main ones. And then you take a myfortic acid, um, mycophenolate and you take a tacrolimus. And those are kind of like the three main drugs that you take, um, that have been around for quite a while that suppress it. But because my immune system is a fighter, (laughs) They got to keep switching me out meds because I keep maxing out on the doses of everything. And then my body becomes toxic. So they're trying to find the right med to give me two months later to suppress my immune system enough that it won't keep trying to fight the organ.
0: I gotcha. And you said there's quite a bit of side effects from it. What kind of side effects did you get?
2: I mean, the biggest one is no immune system, so if yeah. I catch a cold it, I have a cold for about two months. Um, mm-hmm. your body just takes longer to heal as a diabetic your everything just takes longer to heal in general, just times it by four
1: so okay, like if yeah. i get a if
2: yeah. I get a bruise it's there for a long time um, and then um it, it completely destroys because because it's it's killing your your um, your T cells in your body, or it's preventing them from doing anything. So your body can't heal. And like the uh, mycophenolate um, basically destroys your GI system. And so like your stomach, you always have an upset stomach. You always just feel nauseous. And then um, the tacrolimus destroys your kidneys. And so you have to make sure you're drinking a gallon of water a day and you you really feel it um and then the pregnazone it just you can't sleep you you get you get all the puffiness it's there's a i mean there's a lot of things that go with it um but i'm not complaining i'll take that all day long i don't care but uh my point by say by making that is for all the diabetics who think that oh the transplant just say you know just it will allow them to eat whatever they want they don't have to take insulin let me just tell you, I would rather be go back to being a well controlled diabetic than to have been through everything that I've been through than to have been mm. be stuck taking these meds that I have to take every day and have weekly blood work to make sure the levels are within within a therapeutic system within my blood and to worry about everything that's going on and, and um, I, you know I have to make sure I drink filtered water and like you know, the, it's not that it's terrible. It's just, it it was way more easier just being on the pump than to have had, than, than to have gone through all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and now that I have been through it all, um, and noticed that you can't really find someone else who had went through what I did online anywhere because I looked for them. I looked for anyone that had been through what I went through Um, I now am able to talk to people about it and share information about it and raise awareness about it because there's probably a lot of people who don't get to see the right doctors that pass away from brittle diabetes because their doctor is unaware. And if I can just get awareness to people just by telling my story, I I at least think that I'm able to give back and, and give some help to people and that kind of stuff. So, that's kind of like where everything has led me down, um, is to, as a diabetic, don't, don't bank on an organ transplant to, you know, be your saving grace, allow it to be a last chance scenario. If you ever could ever want one, cause you don't. And then the other thing is, um, just to, to raise awareness about it and, and let people know that, yeah, they're out there. Um, but it's, it's it, it's not the route you want to take in life
1: mm. How, have you had anybody in similar situations or pretty dang close to yours since you started being more vocal about it and sort of sharing your story more has anyone reached out to you with a similar scenario that you went through
2: Yes, except none of them had to pay for transplants. Um, so I don't know if they had an insurance that covered it or what, what circumstance it was. A lot of people get kidneys and pancreas at the same time, because if you're getting another organ, the pancreas is considered an ad- addition. And so it's covered by insurance mm-hmm. and a lot of people get the, the um, pancreas and they'll talk about it. <clears throat> But I've only met two other pancreas-only transplant patients um, out of the thousands of people I've spoken to um, over the past two years. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like when I say it's rare, it's, pr- it's pretty rare. And, uh, and people are just like, like, I wasn't really aware of it, you know, of it, of it actually being a thing. I I just I I don't think that the medical profession is just aware of it actually being a th- an actual treatment as well. Um, so yeah, I mean it really is. It's one of those things. That it's it's kind of crazy. Um, and also, brittle diabetes is very rare. People are diagnosed as brittle diabetics when 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 they really aren't. It's not, I'm not taking away anything from anybody who mm-hmm. is diagnosed as one, but. Um, it's not a diagnosis that you want either.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, both Dr. Grady and I are are not like trained as a medical doctor, but I can say with confidence between all the books and textbooks and all the other education that I have, brittle diabetes definitely does not come across. Like, and if it is, it's diminished as like just a lack of will and management. You know, it's such a, Like a rare, like it's like, oh, your low blood sugars because your pump settings have been wrong this whole time. And you know, (laughs) you've been, you know, I think it's easy. Well, uh, the quality or value I think that we try to express is to have control and to have self reliance with your diabetes, but and to take and that to take ownership of it. And but to do that at the same time, you run the risk of realizing or overcompensating and thinking you can control everything, which isn't true. There's this part of diabetes that, that makes it very, very hard to to know what's going to happen next. And you can't control everything all the time and you got to let go sometimes. And I think it can be, it turned into a toxic relationship with yourself, depending on how you view your blood sugar, how you view your numbers. A lot of people get wrapped into the A1C number and their self-worth in the numbers and things like that. And so, to even be considered brittle diabetic might be like, oh, you just don't know what you're doing. And that's most simply not the case for you by any means. You know, I can't even imagine having the fear of not being able to drive, you know, the way that, that you were living for so long. So uh, crazy, crazy scenarios for, for you leading up to that point.
2: Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> And I think that people are very, you know, we're very fortunate in today's day and age with the CGMs and the technology and what, how much can be told to you about diabetes and, you know, a lot of people are, on, are still, are, they, they're given insulin when they're, um, pancreas is still producing insulin and it, it's just, I'm like, I'm like, what on earth are you doing? And just mm-hmm. like you said, like, you know, you have a toxic relationship with your A1C and your blood sugar and stuff like that. And when I look back at it, I'm just like, you know, give yourself some leg, you know, some fricking leg room, you know, be mm-hmm. okay. Just ride the wave. Your line doesn't have to be straight. You know, like it can be wavy. It's okay. You're, you're going to be just fine and your a1c shouldn't be lower than a normal human beings a1c it doesn't mean it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're doing any favors for yourself or your body and right. uh, and yeah and i mean it's very true and and i think that you know social media pushes that It it's a it's it's that gold trophy that you get a show of how great you know you you met mm-hmm. the goals and that's great and that is an awesome goal but also you got to take into consideration how much work and effort is going into that. And that is being taken away from living life and enjoying it and not being so obsessed about testing your blood sugar and all that kind of stuff. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: oh yeah, it's, it's, it's an, it's an interesting concept and, um, doctors are getting more obsessed with it as well. And and it's, yeah, it's it's turning into a very strange thing.
1: Mm Mm-hmm now so you started to do pt started to rebuild you know atrophied muscles and uh you you know you've now by the time you left the hospital you fought rejection twice so at this point then you know once you finally leave the hospital uh what then you know how how does it feel then to be on all these immunosuppressants and, and continuing life and how are your energy levels how is it where are you did you still want to check your blood sugars? You know, how was that those first few moments and months post-surgery, post-being released, post-op, how did those go for you?
2: So in terms of checking the blood sugar, because the, the, um, here's, what, here's, here's, the, here's the way I look at it, because this is what I'm always asked did you eat cake did you have you know did you eat some sugar because because <laughs> they just think okay suddenly you don't have to worry about that that anymore and like that was like the last thing on my mind I, yeah like i'm absolutely. just thinking am i taking am i taking my medication on time did, did i you know did i set them out correctly am i am i doing that all am i doing that all right um but i wanted to get back to life and i needed to start just building just like i had i started with balance i had to i had a start, I had to start physical therapy, learning how to balance again, and that's where mm-hmm. I started. And then my goal was to keep working up until the hospital told me that I was uh, stable enough and I could transfer hospitals to California where all my, par- where my parents and family live mm-hmm. um, and uh, be closer to them because I was all alone in Arizona and then um i moved to california um 9 months after transplant and right when i did that i, I started going through rejection again and had that treated and then um yeah so then it, it just goes to starting to live life it's kind of like do i return to the work that i was doing which is super stressful or do i try to find something else do i find what works um, and I kind of found like a hybrid solution to making money, to paying my bills and to keep my mind and body happy and healthy because that matters to me far more than making X amount of dollars per month and per year, which is kind of what I was going for before in life. So it really changes just like your perspective and, um, and outlook for me. And so, um, yeah. So for me, it was all about maintaining health and wellness. And that's, it's, that's kind of the path that I'm still on. I do what makes me happy. <laughs> um, I, 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 I um, I'm not worried. I'm not, I'm not nearly as worried about things as I used to be like, what, you know, in five years, if I don't meet my goals, what is that going to look like? I'm just like, my goal right now is survival um, but not in a bad way. It's a, it's about, you know, surviving the day, living it to the best of my abilities. And then, um, and when I am told that I have had a successful transplant and I'm stable, then maybe I will consider moving to a different type of job where now I, I have a job that I can, I can take and leave. If, and if I have to go to the hospital and I get sick, it's okay. It can wait and th- those types of things. Um, and a lot of people who had transplants within about a month, they return straight back to work and they have a different opinion about it. And some people don't go back to work at all. And, and they choose to live a completely different life. So like in terms of like what I'm doing with my life for me, it's about living for me and uh, making up for that lost time and enjoying it and not taking anything for granted. And, uh, that's what's been working for you
0: yeah i imagine you have a totally different way of looking at things after from going into this whole situation now coming out the other side i'm sure just a totally different person with a totally different perspective
2: yeah and you know and it and it's very strange to say this because i i I literally went through hell. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. Cause when I look back, I'm like, how did I survive that? I never want to go through that again. That's something that I wouldn't wish on anybody, but it made me such a better person. It made me, you know, like having to become vulnerable and share information and rely on other people and not being afraid to ask for help and it it really it made me a better person for that and i'm very and i am and i am thankful for that i'm not a victim because of what of what i went through i did you know it was something i didn't do to myself this this is just part of life life doesn't go always to plan and uh i'm i'm, I'm just rolling with the punches and i'm okay with that
1: wow uh. So what are some active strategies now that you use to roll with punches that continue to strengthen your health and wellness and uh, to the best of your ability? And, you know, you have this uh, interesting position that you're in now with being on immunosuppressants. You, uh, you actually don't want to have do things to strengthen your immune system too much, right? Because you don't want to... Put your body into uh start rejecting your your pancreas or your you know your new pancreas now so uh there are some like talking about boosting your immune system is such a hot topic right now right and uh for for viruses and and everything else and but it's not like you can participate in, in a lot of these things because you can't have that strong immune system that's literally the point of of your weekly blood draws that you do so so how do you balance health and wellness staying healthy while trying to not have an immune system
2: <laughs> yeah so for me it's about this is kind of like after talking to people and and you know with the doctors and and doing what is right for me and that's staying physically active keeping my body well um and that doesn't mean oh i need to have you know this I need to have this perfect body that to me is being able to do the things that I enjoy. I love surfing. I surf every single week. I love hiking. I go every single week. I, I, um, I exercise. I am active to the point where I am comfortable doing exactly what I am doing and I don't run out of breath and that keeps me healthy. My levels are, our, my, my levels always come back good from my labs because I think I'm doing what makes me um, physically well, and I think that, that that helps my immune system. You know, I drink a a, a lot of water, and um, I stay away from crowds of people, and um, um, I eat a well balanced diet. And there really isn't much else I can do. and and it just comes back down to just living a healthy lifestyle. And and that's what I'm doing. And it's pretty interesting because with everything going on in the world, it made me enjoy the outdoors even more. It forced me to, right. And, and, um, so I got into scuba diving and like, there's like a bunch of little hobbies that I like kind of like picked up and, and, and have really been able to enjoy because, um, I started physical therapy and I started personal training and I weight train and I keep my muscle mass up enough to be able to do the things that I enjoy instead of looking at it differently and saying, um, nope, I had the pancreas. I can eat what I want, do what I want. And, you know, just, just go back and, and go back to a life where I'm not going to worry about any of that kind of stuff. Like, I know the risks i I take. I wear a mask um, I stay away from groups of people. I use hand sanitizer like crazy, and I did that before it was cool and i'm and I'm happy with that and um that's the and that's you know and that's the price that I had to pay for the decisions that i I made in life and um yeah and you know and I'm the happiest i've ever i've ever been it, you know some of the greatest things that have ever happened to me have been through the past two years and that I would have never expected ever in my life.
1: Wow. wow, what a journey. <laughs> uh, what would, you know, from somewhere along the line of, you know, 16, 20 years old when you were just battling, you know, keeping, being a perfect diabetic to now, And just think about everything that was going on then going into college and preparing for your first career as a social studies teacher and doing all these things, the wisdom and the lessons you've gained now. Well, is there something you would tell yourself, you know, a 20 year old version of yourself, uh, that, you know, what, what's like two things that you would really like if you sat down physically with yourself, what, what would you tell yourself?
2: I would, the first thing I would tell myself is to worry less do not care nearly as much about what other people think what other people do if something doesn't go to plan just don't don't even worry about it if you're putting in the work it it will happen the way it's supposed to happen and the second thing that i would tell myself is to not be afraid to be vulnerable because i think as a, a guy and i think as someone who grew up with you know, like i've talked about before with the diabetes that is looked down upon and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, you're, you don't want to, you don't want to show weakness. You you don't want to show that you have something wrong with you. You don't want people to have pity on you for no reason. And that doesn't matter. Um, And so those are the, those are the two things that I would tell myself and it would have drastically changed my point of view and perspective um, younger when I was younger in life.
1: Well, I think that those are great, great comments. And, and that last point, you know, being vulnerable, like you said, as, as males and as just anybody too, you know, females or what, whatever have you is an interesting concept right now, because I think there's this acceptance and people try and talk and communicate how, how we should be vulnerable. But it's like the second you are, immediately you'll feel the judgment, whether it's through social media, online, or, you know just how our brains are wired to receive information and it'll feel still like you're being judged. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, maybe people aren't even paying attention, but it's like, second you make that step to be vulnerable, man, it feels like you're on an Island and it can be so easy to retreat and go back. But the second you were vulnerable is when all these blessings came into your life. You know, it was all the momentum of the change came into your life and because you were brave enough, because that's really what it is. You got to be brave enough to be vulnerable. That's when everything, you know, so much just rolled from there. And I think that's a a beautiful thing to tell, uh, you know, a younger version of yourself and something that all of us to hear too.
2: Yeah. And, and, yeah. And I just want to like add on to that point. Being vulnerable doesn't mean that, Oh, you just get your way. (laughs) Um, You know what I mean? Like, yeah, people are going to hate on you and you're going to get comments. And, but it also shows you that if you really need help, it's okay to ask for help because mm-hmm. there are people out there who they don't know that you need help until you ask. You know, mm-hmm. They're not out there saying, if you need help, just ask. You know, like they're, they're unaware that you need help and they don't know how to help you because they don't know you need help. And so sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to, you have to make that ask in order to receive what you want. And it, it, for how like dumb it sounds, it act it, it actually will, it benefits people. So it does, it, it comes with, it comes with negatives, but the benefits outweigh them significantly.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Great. You got anything as we kind of wrapping up?
0: Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, a question and just a comment, but I'll ask you the question first. Um, so now that you have the transplant, I'm just curious. Do you still check your blood sugar? How often do you check it and do they still check your A1C and how are all those things? Cause, uh, and I'm also just kind of curious, like when you're checking it, is it like just like a non-diabetic where it's like perfect every time you check it or do you have some fluctuation still?
2: So at first I refused to check my blood sugar because they were doing it every, every three days. I was just like, no, if there's a problem, they'll know. Um, <laughs> But I ran into um, getting low a couple of times still, like having hypoglycemia. And just like regular, no, a normal person, a non diabetic has h- hypoglycemia. Mm-hmm. And I still have it. So I don't test my blood sugar regularly, but if I'm not feeling well, I'll test it to see if it's a hypo, you know, if it's, if it's hypo or if, you know, if it's something else. And um, the highest my blood sugar has ever been um i think was 120 i think but it it oh. it runs between 60 it runs between 65 and 75 um and so anytime i test it i think i'm low it'll be like 83 or 72 And, and it just it's shocking to me uh because you just expect the number to come back just you know just off and you're like oh but i'm gonna have to correct for it and um it doesn't and so the body even with a with a transplant does amazing things even taking pregnazone which you know um is supposed to make your blood sugar higher and, and all that kind of stuff it, it it works itself out um i did have to wear cgms twice um because to check on the hypoglycemia, just to kind of see how often it's happening when I'm not testing my blood and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I did one with the Libre and I did one with the um, Dexcom. And um, uh, two or three times a week, my blood sugar goes into the fifties. And it has nothing to do specifically with if I'm fasting or if I'm eating. It just does it, it dips. And then um, it comes right back up. So my, the, um, uh, and what they were explaining to me in the hospital is that what is likely happening is uh, how the liver creates glucogen and it helps raise the blood sugar in, in diabetics and, and non diabetics when your blood sugar starts going down. Um, what they were saying is that my glucogen probably hasn't built up enough yet because I had hypoglycemia for so long. But once it does, I shouldn't have those little hypoglycemia episodes anymore. And then my blood sugar will regulate out way more. So, yeah, for the past two years, my blood sugar has been sitting below like the normal, you know, like, you know, that golden number of 100. Well, mine doesn't even get that high. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and it's just to me, it, just, it blows my mind because I don't feel low. I don't get the, you know, I don't get the, the tingly fingers or, or the cold sweat or anything like that. I just, I, you know, it, it, I feel good. And I'll tell you, um, it, it's a really dumb saying, but it feels good to feel good. and uh, <laughs> I've never been able to say that before.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I know myself included. I know a lot of people I'm sure listening, just hearing, hearing the fact that you now have um, stable blood sugars or like, just feel super excited for you. And also probably maybe a little bit jealous. Um, but at the same time, like you said, it's not, it wasn't a great process to go through and you're still kind of going through a lot right now. So um, by no means, I, I'm sure nobody necessarily envies you, but at the same time, um, it's great to hear that at least you have one part of your life under control again.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, and it's funny cause you know, I, was a diet an insulin-dependent type one diabetic for 31 years? That is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, I mean, I've 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 paid my due diligence in there for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then um just commenting because as we're going along, I was just trying to think through how your body got got from. You know, being be, being able to be under control to all of a sudden having these constant lows, um, and so just thinking out loud, um, I was just thinking about well, maybe through the process of your surgeries, it somehow affected whether damage chemically or physically the alpha cells in your pancreas or just the production of glucagon um, in your from your pancreas to then be able to raise your blood sugar again. Uh, because to be constantly fighting the lows, it wasn't like it somehow turned your pancreas on to where it was now injecting a bunch of insulin in your body. Um, but maybe it fe- affected how well your body was able to then bring your blood sugar back up. Um, so just kind of thinking out loud there. That seems that was the best theory I could think of just
1: just on the spot there. But. Yeah. Cool. So then... Uh, Brandon, uh we like to uh end, end the podcast with a burst my beta cells segment. So uh this can be blood sugar related or not in your case. This could be uh, you know, insurance related. This could be not even health related. Uh but what's something that uh bursts your beta cells? I guess hopefully not too much of your new pain, Chris, because you need that <laughs> those beta cells now. Uh but what bursts your beta cells uh here recently?
2: uh the th- you know the th- things that burst my beta cells just it's sp- specifically recently is how uh, let me try to let me, let me try to do and put it in this in a politically correct um manner um mm-hmm. how duplicitous people are with the way that they say they live their life versus how they actually live their life um and this has to do with the pandemic. And I'm not saying it because I am mad at people. I am just saying it that, you know, you present yourself one way and it's, oh my gosh, I refuse to do this, I refuse to do that. And um meanwhile they're posting pictures of them at family events, Christmas events, um what they're going to be doing for New Year's, them at, you know, out having parties. Which is totally fine. Go and do that, but then don't get mad at somebody for doing the exact same thing. <laughs> so that is what really mm. burst my beta cells lately. Let me tell you.
1: Oh wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I definitely have seen a lot of that, and there's a lot of like self-integrity uh, checks that that are going on, uh, you know, with with that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hmm, haven't thought about it that way. Uh, what yeah. about you, Grade? Oh, sorry. Go on.
2: Oh, I was just gonna say it's just one of those things that I just noticed lately. It's, it's like people calling other people out, and it's like, yeah, but but really, like you're doing the same exact thing. Come on
1: now. <laughs> hmm. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Yeah, I definitely I I see a lot of that too. But um, for me, lately, bursting in my beta cells has been technology. So we've been trying to do a lot with this podcast. Uh, both with Mm -hmm. websites and just posting the podcast our last podcast was supposed to be posted before christmas and i just posted it i think last night because there was just a mess of just technology failures and Mm -hmm. it it has been frustrating so that has been really bursting my beta cells lately
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and that one the original edit was dr grady was actually singing jingle bells in the, in the beginning of the episode but that's what made the whole podcast shut down so yeah yep, it that just one out. crashed
0: everything <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man mm. uh, i burst my beta cells recently uh you know i think just more so than not i've been more more frustrated again with just insurances and things like that and to hear part of your insurance story to say you know although it's medically necessary it's not an like it's essentially an optional coverage is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I heard when you said that, I was like, that's, that's so messed up and uh, continuing to be on company insurance companies. It's, it's such a system that's designed for confusion and decide for not the patient's best interest, but uh, definitely the people working the insurance industry. Now it's all that being said, you know, insurance allows us to to move forward and, and to have coverage and do so many things here. But man, it's such a racket, and it's hard to feel like it's not set up against you uh, when there's so many barriers. And I'm starting to almost talk to them, even with my patients, as you know, uh, paper paper hurdles of like what's what's stopping you? What what what's something? It shouldn't be something that stops you from getting the care and live the life that you should live. Is that kind of stuff? And that's been just more and more frustrating to me uh, these days. But uh, And then since that's almost like a negative aspect of it, uh, let's, let's flip it to, an, and, you know, um, I guess uh, adapting it, because typically we use the phrase, like, how do you live free or how do you feel empowered, you know, from your diabetes? Uh, so I'm trying to think of a phrase real fast that would, I guess, fit your situation, but just what, what's been empowering you? recently uh, to continue to be moving forward
2: you know in 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 spite of everything uh, whether it just be insurance what's going on with people personally what's going on in the world um, with all that kind of stuff you know we're still alive we're still kicking and that is something to be grateful for and empowered about every single day because we get to live, we're you know we're alive, and that is that is something to to really be grateful for and a reason to live, um, and to do things. I don't know. It's just it really is. It's really the whole living thing, which is, is is taken for granted. When you kind of look at it in a different perspective, it's like wow, I'm alive. I'm gonna I'm gonna live it up.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I've been, I've been feeling free just because I've been able to, to move my body recently in the way that, you know, I've been really missing, uh, whether both in the gym and just, uh, mobility wise, flexibility wise, feeling confident, uh, that I can handle certain things. And, uh, sometimes with being diabetic, you know, you feel like you can't do that. Or I remember back when I was in high school, uh, I thought I wanted to be a, a firefighter, but I thought I couldn't do that with low blood sugar, you know, and so being able to move and, and handle situations uh, I've just been feeling really confident with that kind of stuff right these days. But, uh, what about you? Grade? Um, well, my diabetic
0: kind of freedom or win has just been today, which is just being back on a normal schedule. Cause I was mm. off for a week, um, in Arizona with my family and with i didn't necessarily eat that terribly different but at the same time the schedule was just way different and so being off your schedule obviously makes controlling your blood sugars harder so um, i appreciated being on a schedule today having my normal routine of eating and what i'm eating and all that stuff um, being back to normal and just just that just today i've noticed just a big difference. And the ease of which I was able to control my blood sugar, so I'm I'm glad to be back in in a routine again.
1: Nice. So, Brandon, before we really wrap up, uh, I want kind of want to take a second and thank you, and uh, kind of almost reiterate that you have a book coming out uh, sometime in the future, uh, uh, in this closed date. Um, uh, but the title is, uh, I'm still, or oh, the working title is I'm still kicking. Is that, or or tell us a little bit about the, the upcoming book for, for people to hear more about your story.
2: Yeah. So the book is called I'm still kicking. That's, that was, has been my phrase for the longest time. And, and, um, it's just, a, it's just my journey. Um, of what we touched on is, the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so the whole thing is motivational. It's about overcoming obstacles. And the whole point of it is for me to, to go and, and speak to people and let them know that they're not alone in fighting this battle. They're not alone in, with diabetes, with organ transplantation, with, with chronic illness. And the other thing is to raise awareness about it. And the book is just to help with that and but the goal is that it gets put out at the same time that i can go talk to people and until i can go Mm. talk to people the book is on hold so it's a working title yeah it's a working title because things might change between now and when it gets released but until then i get to share my story with people like you and um, it at least gives me a platform to help motivate and, and educate myself and others with new information and uh, hopefully empower people a little bit.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I definitely think uh, everyone listening to this will feel uh, inspired and empowered. Uh, Brandon, if they wanted to learn more and connect more with you, or how, what's the best way to reach you and interact with you?
2: Uh, best way to reach me. Um, I am most active on Instagram and that's on brandonmaoofficial.com And my last name is spelled M as in Mary, O-U-W, Brandon Mao, um, or brandonmao.com. It has all of my information on there. And um, if you want to know more about the book, uh, uh, sign up for my email list, you're not going to get any emails from me outside of just like, welcome to my email list and um, Cause I want to know where people are located and where um, I can go and speak and meet people and stuff like that when it's safe to do so. And so please message me, email me, whatever. I answer every message, every email, everything, even if it's the, you think is the dumbest question or the most rude question um, there's a reason to know about it. And that's, that's, I, you know, I'm here. I may, I, I am, I'm in the public to answer those questions because Uh, I couldn't find anyone else that went through what I went through. And so hopefully I can help people on their journey.
1: Right on. Beautiful. Any, uh, any last things you want to kind of share with uh, any of our listeners, Brandon?
2: Yes. I want to tell your listeners to don't give up, do whatever it takes to keep on kicking. And even if life seems terrible today, the sun will still rise tomorrow. So do whatever it takes to hang on.
1: Love it, love it. Well, thanks, Brandon, so much uh, for joining us. It was great to meet with you and to hang out with you and talk with you for a bit. And uh, thanks, to everyone, for listening. And we'll catch everyone on the next episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See ya. so much for listening to today's episode if you found value in today's conversation we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review it really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it if you want to interact with us on social media you can follow us on the die buddies podcast on facebook twitter and instagram or if you have any questions comments concerns or moral outrages you can email us at the die podcast at gmail.com thanks